All right, everyone, welcome back. Today we are talking to Alice Bag. Alice Bag is the singer of The Bags and who's also had a very storied solo career. What we're talking about is activism in art. And this might seem like an odd departure for us, but I'd say it's like dead on. You know, in the business world, most people that I meet really care about change. They want the right things to happen, but they don't know how to make it happen. And what's interesting is we often look at other places like the art world or music or, or whatever it is. And we say like, oh, that's where the change happens. And one of the things I would say is like, yeah, absolutely that happens out there. But it's still tough there. People have to choose to take the flag and march with it. In some cases, they have to make the flag. And what we can do as business people is we can draw inspiration from those people out in the community who had the guts and the courage and the vision to go out and do it. We can learn from their victories and we can learn from the times where they fell on their face and they had to learn tough lessons. So it is a huge honor to have Alice on the show because she is someone who starting back in, in you know, 77, she's one of those 77 punks, was able to take her art and start applying politics to it. And she's been part of creating some really significant change. So buckle up because this is one of the coolest episodes we've ever done. This is One Step Beyond, and I'm your host, Aram Arslanian. Hey everyone, welcome back to the show. You know, as I said in the intro, today we're going to be talking about the role of activism in art. And our guest today, Alice Bag, is someone that we believe really personifies that in a, in a very special way. You know, growing up in Calgary, Alberta, uh, some of my earliest memories were really about feeling like an outsider. You know, I had this exotic name and I was surrounded by kids named like Colin and Wesley and Mark. And there weren't a lot of other kids that had names that sounded like mine. And this real sense of being like feeling like an outsider was always present when I was growing up. Eventually, I got into skateboarding and that gave me a bit of a community. But it was really when I found punk that I started feeling not just a sense of like, oh, I found my people, but that those people together could create some kind of change. And the idea of something coming from this music, some kind of social change coming from this music was always so important that it really infused whatever I did later on in life professionally with a sense of it's your responsibility to try and create some kind of change. So in doing that and even building this company, one of the things at the forefront of that is what can we do with our voice for good? And a great perspective on that from an art perspective is Alice. So Alice, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for inviting me. Awesome. All right. So for people who, who don't know, because we have listeners from all over, uh, lots of different backgrounds, and we do have people from the punk scene, but I'd love anyone who wouldn't know about your really special background to hear about how did you come up? How did you become Alice Bag? And what was the space where art and activism started to merge? So it's a big question. Go whatever direction you want. <laughs> well, okay. First of all, um, I'm... A musician, but I'm also a writer, and I was a teacher for a very long time. I grew up in East L.A., 
um, the things that influenced my childhood really um, influenced me my whole life. One of those things was uh, being a, a Spanish language speaker. So entering school, not understanding what was going on in the classroom because the teacher was speaking English and I didn't understand her. Um, really, like, you know, you mentioned having an unusual name and feeling like a bit of an outsider. Well, imagine not even, not even being able to communicate with, with um, a teacher. So I think that really, um, that started me on the path to feeling like an outsider. Also, um, growing up in an abusive household where my father uh, beat up my mother on a regular basis, um, put me on the path of identifying as a feminist in future years because, and initially in my childhood, I was like, oh, I never want to be like my mother. I never want to be a victim. You know, my, it, my, my thinking has evolved since then, but it started at that point of not of perceiving my mother as weak and wanting to, um, to stand up against that particular patriarch, my father. Mm -hmm. And that kind of, you know, it grew with me, that concept of challenging the patriarchy at home grew with me as my understanding of, you know, gender roles and, um, and what, what situations, um, relationships of power are really about. So, um, I, you know, and also, I'm not sure if I'm actually answering your question because I'm talking a lot about my childhood. Oh, but please, this is where, please. <laughs> but this is where it all started for me, yeah. right? Um, so I'm a, I'm a Chicana. I'm queer. I'm a OG punk, you know, from 77. Hell yeah. Uh, and then in my, in, a, in my like 50s, I decided to start writing. Um, I, I was I start, started writing like in my um, in my mid forties, and I was an early blogger. And uh, at a certain point, you know, I had some friends tell me, "You should write a book. You have you know you have a lot to say, and you never mm -hmm. you know why don't you put it all in a book?" And I remember thinking like, "I'm not a writer, and I'm not. I don't have any training. I don't have any desire to write a book." And then thinking like, "Well, you know what?" You don't necessarily have to wait until you have proper training to express what you have to say. So I, um, my husband created a, a blog for me called The True Life Adventures of Violence Girl and uh, challenged me to start writing. So I started blogging mm -hmm. and blogging was a way for me to, um, to keep my writing manageable. So um, long story short, I wrote a whole book that was based on blogs that was not, that was based on blog entries, which I think is really punk because that's how, you know, punk songs are. They're short. <laughs> they're, they're not, it's not about achieving perfection. It's about capturing an idea and, uh, and putting it down and sharing it, you know, like just. Don't wait until you polish it until it's lost all the sharp edges. Mm. So, and then fast forward again, you know, like to where I am now, I'm 61 years old. I just recorded when I just released my third solo album. And, uh, and I use the word solo loosely because I had a lot of help, but mm. it's basically, you know, it was, uh, it was something that came that where I wrote the songs and they, and I had, I had my hand in every pot. 
So I feel like, <laughs> yeah. like I need to own it. Um, <laughs> So, okay, so I've told you about myself. What else did you want? <laughs> all right. Well, first of all, that was amazing. And as you mentioned, the solo record, Patrick, who's sitting across the computer from me, gave me a big thumbs up. He was like, oh, it's a great record. So, uh, yeah, he's got, I was going to send it to him. <laughs> and he just, he just put his fist up in the air too. So we got, we got, we got dual recognition, you know, and I, I'm just going to tell you, Patrick does not lie. He is uh, he 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 would have given me a grim look otherwise, and I just wouldn't have said anything. So that is high yeah. praise. From, <laughs> have, have you ever heard Patrick's band Chain Whip? No, I don't. Oh think my so. gosh! Listen, I hope he sends you the LP because they are ferocious. They're really, really, really good. Um, all right, you know, there's a bunch of stuff I want to unpack there, and we're going to do it as we as we go on. But one of the things that I, I want to hit on: what was the space for you where art? and activism merged and you started really expressing activism through your art. Was it always right from the beginning or was there a point where it was something clicked and it became a different pursuit? No, I think for me at the very beginning, when I first got in a band, I had a lot of personal issues and I feel like, you know, a lot of times the personal is also political. As I said, as I was telling you about my childhood and how it influenced a lot of who I am, you know, feeling like a Chicana, feeling like I want to be able to use my language and be myself in my country, you know, even though people might look at me and say like, oh, she's, they might qualify like she's American, but she's Mexican American, which they don't do to European Americans, right? Right, right. So I feel like, uh, so I feel like I want to feel like who I am as a Chicana, whether it's my language or my culture is seen as part of the essential fabric of being, you know, part of this country. But um, you asked me something and I got sidetracked. I'm sorry. No, how so I I'm... got political, how it got political. Yeah. So um, I, I think people write with what's important for them, you know? So sometimes if you are, you know, you know, Maslow's, right? So if you don't have food and shelter, you're going to write songs about like, damn, I'm hungry, or yeah. I need someplace warm, or, you know, I need love, I need somebody to take care of me. And then there are times when you just, when there's so much going on around you that you feel like that is taking up a lot of your time and energy. And for me, I got to the point where, like, I had a place to live, I had a regular job, I had, like, a good relationship that I was in. And then I started really focusing more outward and feeling like what's going on around me? How can I help? How can I make a difference in my community? Um, I was a teacher for over 20 years and a lot of what was happening to my students, like, um, you know, I would take it home and like just dwell on it. Um, at a certain point, I remember, like, I had a bunch of students who were from Central America, and I felt like, I need to know more about what is going on in their country. Why are they migrating here? Why are they taking the risks that they're taking? I had, like, a, a student tell me um, his, his experience coming into the United States with a coyote, which is, uh, for listeners who might not know, is someone who brings, who is paid to, I guess, kind of ferry um, an immigrant over through back ways, right? And, and a lot of times those ways are not safe. 
And in this particular case, one of my students was um, kind of kept for ransom until his family was able to pay the Coyotes fee. And so he came to my class and he was talking about that in class. And I thought, like, what is driving this? What is driving a family to, you know, send a five and a 12-year-old kid by themselves across the border with these unreliable people who then hold them as hostages. And so I, um, I went to Nicaragua and spent some time volunteering there and, um, and had my head straightened out. <laughs> I really had no idea what was going on uh, in my own country. And I think sometimes it was just a matter of switching my perspective at looking at the United States through the lens of the people that were living in, in Nicaragua. And this is the mid 80s. So it was just after the Sandinista revolution. So um, I really started getting more political at that time. And it crept into my lyrics. I mean, I feel like music is just a form of expression. But also, punk is not just expression. You know, punk rock is not music that you go and hear at a venue where you're seated eating popcorn and somebody is performing for your entertainment. Punk rock is about engagement. It's about feeling who's in the audience with you. It's about community. It's about, you know, feeling like you've got power. At least that's how, that's what punk made me feel, you know? So I think it, it just was a really natural transition for me to uh, to become more political. Not, not all my songs are political, but um, but definitely a lot of what happens in my life um, ends up on vinyl <laughs> these days. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and you know, I want to I want to capture this because I think it's really important. And please correct me if I if I don't get this right. Um, from a hierarchy of needs perspective. You know, when you were first involved in music, what you were addressing were the things that were just more visceral to you, like, a, right. you know, economic needs or like a sense of belonging or any of those things. And as you became uh, more settled into your life and those things had been addressed, it allowed you to, to take it from an inward pursuit of expression to saying, hey, what's going on in the world around me? And that's really where you started to put more of that energy into, into the political activism through music. Is that correct? That's exactly correct. And I think another thing that happened to me was that this is something that happened in the punk, uh, in, in like the 70s, right? So I was still very young and it was an epiphany I had. I was on stage at a club where the whole room was really dark, but there was a light on stage. There was light shining on me, light shining on maybe the first like five rows of the audience. And then the rest kind of vanished into obscurity. And as I was getting like into the show, people were like following my performance, dancing wildly when I dance wildly, calming down when I calmed down. You know, I could feel the eyes move with me as I moved across the stage back and forth. And I looked out into the darkness and I couldn't see the end of the room. And I just thought these people are not only paying attention to what I'm saying, they're connected with me. And I am the driving force and my limits i can't see the end of my limits you know i can't see it's all black out there it could be it could extend endlessly so i i remember having that feeling that there was power in that connection in that human connection 
I didn't at that time do much with it except feel like, you know, just enjoy the feeling of, of being strong and feeling powerful. Um, but because, because I come from a, a background where my mother was beaten and I try as a child to break things up and I was just swatted away, I felt like it was just such a change to be on a stage where what I said mattered, where what I did mattered, and to feel like I wasn't just going to be swatted, like I had some control. So learning that uh, was just super meaningful for me, and it was something that never left me. I always remember that particular day, like, you know, I'm talking about it now. <laughs> like, yeah. so, um, so I think it really taught me the power of community and engagement and uh, how it's not necessarily about um, about getting it perfect. You know, a lot of times uh, you look at, in, you listen to a speech or you, um, you're watching a leader maybe on TV or reading something they say, and it's, it's really about the connection with the ideology, not necessarily with the person. I think sometimes in our society we get sidetracked and we start thinking like this person is going to they're going to be the answer to my problems and they're going to change the world for me and i really think we need to try to get away from that and to and to hang on to what the person is saying to what it is about what they're saying that you connect with and to know that that is transferable that's transferable to you you can be a leader i can be a leader a group of us can, you know, can create change. Um, I, I, I think about these things now, especially now because it's, you know, a time when we're going to be having elections soon and people tend to pin their hopes on candidates instead of just trying to think of like, how can I get my ideology represented, put forward, and how can I move it along in different ways? Uh, through the different uh, branches of government. Yeah, you know, and there's something uh, that you said there that really stood out to me. And I think it's, well, I can say to my own punk experience, um, it's very easy to, to focus on kind of these iconoclasts of people who say these things. You're like, oh my gosh. And forget about the meaning and focus on on the person. Like, this is a good person. Wow, they're they're so amazing. Instead of looking at the words and the ideas and saying like, hey, I'm going to take this on or I'm going to engage with these and what can I do with these? And a person is a person is a person. And, you know, some people are, they're provided the opportunity to speak because they're in the right place at the right time or they create that for themselves or they're charismatic or whatever it is. Um, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they're the, a good person. And it doesn't mean that they're a perfect person or a person that's a, a saint and is going to be able to, to take those ideas over the line. In fact, maybe they're just someone who's really good at speaking and they don't even actually believe in those things, but it doesn't mean that those ideas aren't valid. Exactly. And it also doesn't mean that that person is always going to be a good person. People mm. change and in different situations, people may do things that are, you know, not, not great. And then you, you have to reevaluate. I mean, how many, you know, music heroes have have we had that you look back and they say or do something that you find distasteful and then you think like, oh, 
wow, do I have to throw that record away or am I, am I going to enjoy it less? Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes if you have put all your energy into the person instead of into the song or, you know, the idea or the melody or whatever, then you are going to be disillusioned. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't, I don't know. I don't know why no, I got I, started on this, but. Uh, no, I, I love this. And this, this, you know, for both professional reasons and personal reasons, that really resonates for me. Um, so uh, would you mind if I ask about kind of your early punk experience, like back in 77? Yeah. What do you want to know about my early punk experience? I was, um, let's see, how old was I? I, was a, I think I was 18 or 19 when I got into punk. And uh, well, I was in school, actually, when I got into punk, but when I actually got in a band and started playing. I was still at the point where I had to like go in the back to some of the club at, at some of the clubs and stay in the dressing room because I wasn't old enough to drink in the United States. You have to be 21 <laughs> to drink. So of yeah, course yeah. I was, I was definitely drinking backstage anyway, but <laughs> yeah. I was, yeah. Well, and what I'm interested in, especially like in the, in the LA scene, like, was it a scene that was welcoming of all sorts of people or was it very rulesy and you had to kind of look a certain way? Was it uh, inclusive of queer people? Was it inclusive of people of color? Like what, what was it like? Oh, I, I feel like it was a wonderful place to be. If you were a weirdo, if you were a misfit, <laughs> if you were queer, if you were a person of color, if you were something that was not valued in your own backyard, in Hollywood, in the punk scene, you would have been like, <laughs> you would have been valued because that's what we looked for. We looked for people who were themselves and were unusual, especially, I think, I, I think the only people that um, ever maybe felt like they weren't welcome were people that like acted like they were too cool, you know, like, oh, you know, I'm gonna, I've got the perfect hairstyle or I've got some, you know, designer jeans or something like I, I think there was a little bit of um, a bias against that. And also there were like people who would like pressure you to cut your hair if you had long hair, because there was this uh, feeling that we didn't want to be associated with hippies. Although we probably had a lot in common with hippies, right, yeah. but, <laughs> but um, no, I feel like um, my experience in the very early punk scene, and I'm going to say this was, you know, 76 heading into 77 is when, people were starting to transition um, from glam. A lot, of the, a lot of the people who were involved in the glam scene in LA transitioned into punk. So you might see like someone with like a, a rhinestone top and like uh, a ripped, like, you know, ripped fishnet stockings. And like, so there, it's a weird combination that I still find like really cool. <laughs> yeah. Well, but um, yeah. <laughs> I think well, I think my music is influenced by punk as well as glam because that was a, you know that was when I first actually got in a band and started feeling like I can make music, um, but yeah I, it was the the LA scene was later um, like depicted as being a lot more uh, homogenous than it was there it was not dominated by white men mm-hmm. uh, white hetero sexual men um there were white heterosexual men but there were also queer men a lot of them a lot of people of color uh at least you know at least half of the punk scene was women in like defining roles i mean there were women that were 
um, like I bring up, there's this group of women in a band called Backstage Pass who get very little credit for being very important. There was a um, club called The Mass in Hollywood where a lot of us played. And, uh, and it was kind of our clubhouse. It was more than a club. It was actually like a clubhouse, you know? So um, a lot of times when you read about The Mask, you read about um, this Scottish guy who came out and started it. His name is Brendan Mullen, and he's, he was an awesome, really cool guy. Um, but because he was Scottish, he couldn't rent the, um, the space where The Mask was being held the women from Backstage Pass had to co-sign on the lease. They went in and started helping to fix the rooms to create rehearsal studios. And so they were like really important, a really important part of that history, her story, and, and that story is never told. Women were booking bands. Women were being managers of bands, uh, doing sound, a Almost every band had at least one woman. There were roadies, there were photographers, writers. So, I mean, that one reason that I, I have a, a website and I tried to interview the women who were involved in the early LA punk scene was because I was picking up books and reading all about the dudes and thinking like, wait, what happened to all those women who I know were essential parts of this movement? None of this would have happened if it wasn't for the women propelling it forward. So um, unfortunately, erasure is a true thing. It's real. Yeah. And, you know, so this is why I wanted to ask about it, because, you know, there's something that that I love about punk and that has been huge, huge for me in my life. Um, it's been about not waiting for permission. So, you know, I, like I mentioned to you as, as starting up, you know, I had kind of like a weird weird childhood experience i grew up in a pretty unstable environment and there's like lots of like you know bullying in the neighborhood and it led me into led me to punk and one of the things i learned about punk is don't ask permission just do it if you if you want to raise your voice you raise your voice if you want to start a band and you suck at your music you don't know how to do play at all you just go and do it and there's going to be an audience there's going to be people interested in what you're doing because the community's set up that way Biggest thing, lesson I ever learned, don't ask permission, just do it and hone your craft along the way. Exactly. Yes. So I, I love that and I value that. In there, I found like ideas around activism. So, you know, I got into veganism, I got into, you know, social justice, all of those things. But one of the things that I've, I've, I don't ever want to be that punk that's like, well, back in my day, it was blah, blah, blah. But I do have a sense and a, a feeling that there has been there have been moments within the culture that have shifted away from that kind of inclusive political thinking. And I, I'm always hesitant to tell people how, how it should be in punk because, you know, what do you, it's a community or people are, it's going to be how it's going to be. But I also have real concerns that things can shift away where it just becomes a form of music. And to me, that's not, that's not punk. That for my own punk experience, that's not punk. So I would love to hear from that early space where you're talking like, it was this great mix. Like, you know, it was, it was everybody doing stuff. Nobody waited for permission. We just made it happen. Was there ever a time where you felt like the scene shifted around, uh, around you to be away from that? Yeah, there definitely was. I think at a certain point, um, as the scene was growing, people were coming in from different parts of LA that were no longer those weirdos and misfits. Instead, they'd read about punk or heard about it. You know, this is like, 
a few years after it had already, you know, been going, like probably the early 80s. And um, it, it did start to look homogenous. You know, people, somebody had read like, you know, wear leather jackets and combat boots. And, <laughs> uh, and there were in LA, like a lot of dudes that would just come up front and start like playing. I think of it as playing, you know, American football where you're just kind of pushing people out of the way. It's no longer about the music. It's no longer about community. All of a sudden, it's about like who, you know, which gorilla can thud their chest the hardest. And that was not fun for me. That was not fun for most of the people that were involved in the early scene. Because for us, it was about the music. It was about community. It was about supporting and listening to the weirdos that were on stage doing something creative that was different. Um, and, uh, you know, so for a while, I think it did shift. And um, but I think those things, once something has existed and you've seen it, like there's going to be people that say, look, remember when we used to go see these shows and they were this way? Let's capture that again. You know, let's capture the inclusivity. Let's capture the emphasis on weirdness rather than perfection or on like not waiting for permission. That's a, those are life lessons. You know, those are not lessons that apply just to punk. They apply to everything you do. Mm. And um, so I think there's, there's change that happens where things start to go off the tracks a little bit, uh, but then the community will bring it back. I, at least, my experience has been, and, and as a musician, I realized that I have my own group of people that enjoy my music and will come and see my shows, and they probably uh, have similar views to mine. You know, my audience is going to be different from somebody who is uh, attracting that kind of jock energy. So mm -hmm. I, I imagine that these, there's like parallel universes of punk where yeah. some punk's themes are very inclusive and uh, there's respect for queers, there's respect for women, there's a feeling that like this is our space and we're going to make sure that uh, people are treated properly. And there are spaces where it's like, you know, let's just, you know, somebody spit on you, get up, that's punk rock. Or, you know, like, I think just judging by what I see online sometimes, there are people who think punk rock is all about being, you know, just playing badly and uh, getting drunk and messing things up. And, I, and there's an element, yes, there's elements of, you know, playing badly is not, an, it's, that's not, there's no issue with that, but it's not about playing badly. <laughs> it's, it's, about, it's not a it's destination. About, that's not the that's not the end game. The end game isn't to play badly and to get chicks and like get drunk and pick fights. That's you know, that may happen along the way, but that's not it. That's not punk rock. The punk rock part is expressing yourself, finding community, and finding that you have power to change yourself and change the people around you and change our world. Yeah. All right. So this, this brings me to a question that I'm, I'm real interested in because we, we've touched on it and you mentioned it that you started seeing this in the eighties. And now I want to take it out into, into more of the, the political space. Um, what about, uh, so we're in this time of uh, where I believe we're all very hopeful some real social change is going to happen. 
But we are seeing things, movements like Black Lives Matter, Defund the Police, or even things like Pride Month. As these become parts of more recognized mainstream culture, there's always the, the danger that these things become co-opted by mainstream culture. So, you know, we talked about this like early 77 punk that then people from outside that scene started coming in and just kind of recreating it in what they think it is. We've seen within politics, like really important social movements can, can be co-opted by people who are attracted to it because of the passion that it's put forward with and they get drawn in, but over time they change it. I want to get your thoughts on that as someone who has used their music and their art and their idea you know, for activism. And you've been an activist. What do you think are, are the things that we can do to protect some of these movements and keep them vital? I think things you just have to keep. You just have to keep um, on top of it when you see that things are changing. I think if you don't focus on people or fo not even focus on the organization, but focus on the content, then you'll know, like, this is not content that I agree with. This is not an idea that works for me. And to stay a questioning person, you know, I used to, when I was a teacher, I used to wear a button that said question authority. And you know, we, we all, we're all going to question somebody like Trump, right? But we need to also question the people that we think are authorities. And so if, you, if somebody that you respect and admire says something that you disagree with, then you need to take that comment and, um, or that idea and explore it, not just accept it at face value. So I think that's a way to, um, to keep movements from being co-opted you know because if you see that that's happening then you can question hey why are you saying that or um what does that mean hmm. well and so this brings me to my next question and this is a tough one and you know and i i don't know if there's an answer here so in general in the arts one of the things that we see uh, is corporations you know big businesses when art gets to a level where it's acceptable enough that corporations start pouring money into it. And so, for example, like we'll use punk as an example. When punk became like viable, major labels were putting out punk bands. But not just that. Like if I think of uh, energy companies, like oil companies and stuff like that, they often invest heavily in the arts. So if I think of Calgary, where I grew up, Calgary's got all of this arts funding that comes from the energy sector. And you see that in, in Texas a lot as well. And then now that, um, you know, Let's say 20 years ago, you would never see a corporation or very few corporations supporting Pride Month. But now, you know, that's like this big, big push that they have because it's become an acceptable thing. So because it's become acceptable, corporations are, are going to do it. And now we've got corporations who are making all these posts about social change and racism. And I think there's a couple things. It hits me on one side where I'm like, oh, it's so awesome that like, you know, we're at a point in our society where people companies are kind of forced to do this because they can no longer just totally ignore this. On the flip side, it really like, is it possible for businesses and companies to engage in this stuff in an ethical way, in a, a great way? And is it actually a good sign that they're doing this? So I guess my question to you is, is there an ethical way for art to engage with corporate America or corporate whatever? I think, you know, I, I think there are ways that you can engage with it, but I think you have to always remember that a corporation has the interests of their 
shareholders or their, you know, whoever is running that particular, um, if it's, if it's, a if it's a nonprofit, it's a different story from someone who is looking to uh, sell your, whatever it is that's cool about you to make a profit. And they may not even believe in what you're saying, you know, like, um, so then you, ha it's, it's up to the artist to decide, like, it's worth it to me to like get my message across or it's not worth it because I know these people don't really believe it and they're just using it because they think it's, you know, it, they think they can sell it. Um, yeah, that's, I mean, I, I always, I always think that if you can, um, it, it's like making a deal with the devil, really. Yeah, <laughs> well, that, that's what I'm, yeah. that's what I'm wondering about. Yeah. I mean, it, I think you might think like, okay, I'm going to get this for nothing. I'm going to get a grant or I'm going to get like, you know, uh, this opportunity to do something that I couldn't do on the scale that I want to do. And then um, you come to realize that the reason that they're doing it is, you know, to sell more of a different, of a, of a product that maybe, and maybe that product is a good thing and maybe it's not. Mm -hmm. So I think that's really a question for an individual artist to consider and to, you know, if you're going to get involved with the corporation, you have to like check to see who owns it. What are they doing? What are the, you know, how do they affect the community? And um, is it worth it? And, you know, <laughs> I don't know. Well, yeah, that's it. It's, I, I mean, I asked you an almost impossible question because I don't know, you know, like if some, if some, like, I mean, the company that I run is essentially like, you know, it's, it's a company, right. And if, and I work for corporations and I go and work with huge, like multi-billion dollar corporations and work with their C-suites and all of that. And I always view what I do is, well, I'm a therapist with a slant for social justice. And I go in and do this work from that perspective. And, you know, I, I believe that what I do is like good, solid work um, that, that has good meaning. But I also, there's times where I'm like, damn, like this is like, I'm getting uncomfortable here. How do I feel about it? So there's always a little bit of a push and pull for me about it. And I have to do a lot of like pulse checks for myself. Like, how do I feel about this? When I look at it strictly from the artist's perspective, like if I, if my activism was done solely through art and a corporation was going to invest in that, that's a, a, a lot of complexity there. So, and I guess the distinction for me is my company intentionally works with corporations versus uh, if I was playing in a band and a corporation was investing in me, how would I feel about it? And I don't have a right or wrong here. I'm, I'm more interested about like, if we partner with corporations, not just as artists, but also as um, activists. So again, we're thinking about things like Black Lives Matter, defunding the police, Pride Month. Is that possible to do that in a, in a way that's not sticky? Like, can these corporations really back these movements in a real way? Or is it just another form of marketing? I think it's always, I think it's always uh, something that you have to be cautious about. I don't think there is like an easy answer for that. You know, I, and I, when I first, when I first heard your question, I was really thinking about like friends that I have who have endorsements from like, you know, uh, guitars, guitar companies or, you know, cymbal companies or uh, tennis shoe companies and <laughs> Doc Martens, whatever. And I'm like, okay, those are all things that, you know, we're going to use and they're not like, 
they're not perpetuating anything harmful. Um, you said you're, you're vegan, you know, like, okay, I like, maybe there's like a vegan company that wants to put something out because you're, you're vegan. Mm -hmm. Um, so there's things that I think you have to evaluate that, you know, you have to say like, this is a good company that I believe in. Um, this is a company that has had a, you know, a sketchy past and the, um, the people, I mean, because there's corporations and there's corporations, there's like, you know, like a group of people, like two or three people can get together. I think you can even be a corporation of one. Mm -hmm. um, it varies dramatically. I think you really have to evaluate case by case. And, you know, as with everything else, you have to question the motive. If something doesn't seem like it's right, then, and you'd rather walk away from it, then maybe you should. You know, like I also get really happy when I walk into this. I don't know if you guys have Target up there, but mm -hmm. we have we have Target here. And whenever Pride Month comes along and everything is rainbow at Target, it's like, oh, my God, this is so cool. Right, but, you right. know, it's like who at Target, who like how many people at Target? Like, do they have like queer friendly policies? I don't know. So and, that's and what we have to find out if like if they're if they're uh, you know what do their workers think what do their like what are their policies mm -hmm. um do they do they walk the walk or are they just like selling t-shirts <laughs> yeah well and so this this then as we you know we're coming to the to the uh, close of our conversation i got a couple more questions for you and one of them was so having been someone who really came up in like the early days of the punk scene and really you just you didn't ask for permission you just did it and you have lived a life of you know like art activism and you continue to do those things today when you're looking at the business world and business leaders because there's a lot of business leaders that listen to this who don't have a, the, the same background that you would have um do you have any advice for them around activism you know, if we're talking about someone who, you know, didn't come up in the punk scene, it didn't come up in that world, but they are interested in these ideas and maybe they're interested in their business engaging in these ideas, the corporations they're a part of. Is there any advice that you could give them about how they could do that in a way that is like, you know, just like honest and real and, and really shows respect for the ideas? I think everybody can be an activist in their own way. I think people can be activists at home. With, by having conversations with your family at work, by talking to your coworkers and in business, you know, and it, it takes, it takes courage. All you got to do is speak up and you have to listen. When people tell you something, this is, you know, you have to listen with respect and you have to hear what is hap what is the reality of this other person. If they're telling you that something is unfair or that, something could be improved. I think activism is very easy to do if you care about others. And um, so that's a start. Mm, I love that. Activism is very easy to do if you care about others. That's an incredible, uh, incredible way of summing it up. All right, last two questions. Um, so we know you got this new solo album out. Uh, what else are you doing to stay creative during COVID? Oh, wow. Well, um, I started off doing uh, these workout videos and then I transitioned away from the workout videos into making uh, masks. At the time I started making masks, they weren't like widely available and I mm -hmm. wanted to stay safe. So I have uh, 
a sewing machine that I hadn't taken out in, I am ashamed to say, in years. And I took it out and started like reacquainting myself with it. And uh, and now I not only made some masks for myself, but I um, I'm starting to make some clothes for myself. I'm I'm doing the like little house on the prairie, like <laughs> living like <laughs> I'm making my clothes. You might say, <laughs> and and it's very it. funny because it, it's also very punk rock. You should see some of it. It's like heck yeah. But, yeah, it's like that's this great. arm is longer than the other one, but that's okay. I'll just that's okay. roll it up and, and, and <laughs> pretend that it was meant to be that way. <laughs> I love it. You can rock. All right. All right. So last question for you, and then we'll we'll leave it off with some uh, with some last thoughts here. And you can do either one, or you could do you could tell me neither one. But uh, either, what is your top three best shows? that you experienced back in, you know, in the early punk days, like those three shows, you could be like, there's never going to be a night like this again, or your top three best punk records of all time, either or. Wow. That is hard. And that's really hard because, because I change all the time. You know, it depends on what I'm in the mood for on a particular day, but um, let me think. Let me think. We ask the hard questions here on. Yeah, on, that is, that is a really hard question. <laughs> um, I, I can't think, I don't have an answer for you. I can't okay. think of, I, I love, okay, my favorite records. Uh, I love the Buzzcocks. Mm. Um, I can't think of which one I like best, but can I say a Buzzcocks record? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Maybe okay. I'll, I'll just say Singles Going Steady because I know that's got like all of them. Well played. Well played. That's I'll a good one. You. That's got the singles. Uh, probably Germ Free Adolescence. Oof. And um, let me see. Let me think of another one. Oh. I'm going to say Parallel Lines. fire fire across listen patrick right now across from me right now has a very impressed look on his face and you know really yeah he's he he actually just put his hand over his heart and and just tapped his heart that's good all right i feel really good about that um okay so as we're closing off anything that you want to leave our audience with and you know keeping in mind our audience is going to be people that are just like fans of what you do they followed your career they're super psyched that to hear you talk about these things and there's other people who just have no idea who you were before this podcast and are just like, you know, really interested in what you had to say today. So anything you want to leave with the audience as we're closing off? Yes. In the spirit of being an activist, wherever you are and caring about other people, please wear a mask. Please keep a safe distance for the sake of others who may be sick or caring for people who are vulnerable. Be an activist by keeping others safe. Oh, awesome. Thank you so much for your time. And, you know, as we're closing off, everyone, um, one of the things that, that uh, we really try and do with this podcast is, yeah, we talk about business ideas and uh, we talk about, you know, I guess ways that we can do better business. And one of those things is like, listen, you know, business world isn't full of villains, but it's also not full of angels. Like, there are people who do lots of good stuff in the business world and there are people who do just do their jobs and there are people who do terrible things, like legitimately terrible things. 
business isn't going to get better unless we, as people, go into those dark, scary corners, flash a light in there, and rather than just expose them and rant and rave about it, instead we go in and do the work of change. And the work of change means we're consistent. We do it as a community. We do it together. We don't relent. We don't give up. And we don't give each other high fives and walk away and just assume the work is done and then let the darkness come back in. We go in, we do the hard work, and then we go forward together. And that's how I believe it's done. Alice has been a, as a, a really inspirational person. And you know, thank you so much for joining us today. And everybody, you know, let's keep up the good fight. Dave, drop the beat. That was one of the coolest conversations I've ever been a part of. Uh, you know, I know it's a good conversation when I'm looking across the computer and Patrick has got a huge grin. So that was like, yeah, we're doing good. Alice, thank you so much for being on the show. Uh, you continue to be an incredible inspiration and you definitely walk the walk. So thank you for that. You know, when we're talking about empowering ourselves, like how do we, how do we move beyond just a bunch of great ideas? Listen, there is no easy way to do that. When I think of myself, um, I'm a guy with a lot of opinions, a lot of ideas about how things should be, but I'm not my best self all the time. Sometimes I am totally as full of it as anybody else. And when I think of the Alice's story and everything she shared, it, I was really thinking of like, man, am I living up to what I want to live up to as much as I can? And this is what I got to say to you. If you believe in creating real change, in society, in your community, in the business world, you don't need to be perfect all the time. But what you've got to be willing to do is progress. So that means looking at yourself in the mirror, looking at those tough spots and making some conscious changes. And once you're doing that, start looking about how you can bring some of that same energy to your workplace, to your community. So I'm a firm believer in focus on creating some change in yourself and take that same energy and bring it into the world. We're not going to be able to do this by ourselves, but when we see someone like Alice out in the world doing really impressive things, and she's been at it for a long time, that tells us that not only can we help make change happen, but we can be in the game long-term and do some real things. So I hope this episode was as uplifting for you as it was for myself and Patrick, and we will see you next time on One Step Beyond. What?